Good morning. Welcome to Lesson 11 in Romans in the Explore the Bible curriculum. Uh, my name is Scott Ferguson. I teach A59 with John Hoyer as our director. Uh, a little bit about me. I was I was more or less raised here at FBC Keller. Uh, I met my wife here in the youth group, although in high school we only dated for like 10 minutes. Uh, we went our separate ways for college. For college, I went to Washita Baptist University. I studied theology, biblical studies, and Greek. Uh, right after college, I went overseas to West Africa. I was a, I was a journeyman missionary through the International Mission Board uh, for two years. Our church, FBC Keller, helped sponsor that. Uh, they paved the way for me uh, in going and being exposed to missions. And so just my little plug here, every winter, every Christmas season, we give to the Lottie Moon. That money that you donate to the Lottie Moon offering, the Christmas offering, goes directly to people like me who are serving overseas. It trains us. Uh, it helps us network. It provides everything we need, our food, our lodging, our equipment. And so uh, consider, even now, you can give to Lottie Moon year-round. This It's not just a one-time-a-year thing. So if you have some excess, especially around uh, the Christmas season, I pray that that would be something you would consider giving towards. After I was done in West Africa, I came back and I, I cowboyed on a ranch. I worked on all through college. I grew up, you know, breaking training horses, doctoring cows, riding fence. Uh, so as soon as I came back from Africa, I went back to that to kind of reacclimate to things. Uh, while I was there, I was doing pastoral ministry, and my wife and I reconnected after our time away, and we got married. Shortly after, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky to study at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary for a master's degree. I uh, was up there, and shortly before I finished, my wife and I moved back to the Keller area, and currently I'm a firefighter, a police officer, and a paramedic at a municipality in Dallas County. My wife, Kelly, is a critical care nurse at Baylor, and we have two awesome kids, Levi, who's five, about to be six. He's a knuckle-dragger, all right? He is feral, but despite being a, you know, a little caveman, he is super sweet, super affectionate, and will love you till the day he dies. And Emmy Lou, my daughter, she's three, and she's all smiles all the time. Little Miss Pris, you'll see her around if you're walking the halls. She will make herself known. All right, enough about me. Let's get to the text. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 12. And so I, what I've done is, I'll be honest with you, I've taken a little bit of a liberty here. Our text that's assigned through the curriculum uh, kind of piecemeals chapter 12 in a, a little bit of an awkward way, and so I, I repackaged it. We're just going to go through, this, through the first 13 verses. Uh, I think that that's a, a pretty healthy way to, to do this, at least as far as the way my brain works and moving through the text. But before we get into chapter 12, we have to understand what's going on in chapter 11. So Paul has spent a considerable amount of time and space talking about the relationship of Jews to the gospel as well as Gentiles to the gospel. At the end of the day, what Paul is preaching in chapter 11 is humility and gratitude. God will always retain a faithful remnant, and it is in God's mercy and sovereignty that he would save any, let alone some. Right? He, he could save no one. But he does save some, and those that he saves consist of both Jew and Gentile. Now, he warns us strictly not to become arrogant in our salvation and to see the big picture that God has temporarily hardened Israel, which we learned about in verse 25, so that the gospel would be extended to the Gentiles. 
Now, Paul ends the chapter by asking a, a pretty important rhetorical question. And basically, it's this. What can we do then to give back to a God who already has and knows everything? If God saved us, he certainly did so out of his choice because there's nothing that we have done or could do to merit salvation. So he saves us, even though we have nothing to offer, which should elicit praise and thanksgiving from us. So how do, what, what do we do? How do we do that? What does that look like? What gifts can we offer God that would please him if he already has everything and knows everything? Well, up till the time of Jesus, gifts typically took form uh, as a sacrifice. Usually in the form of an animal, though not always. It could be grain or money. And that's what worship often looked like. But now Paul is explaining what is expected in thanksgiving and worship of the New Testament believer. And now we move into chapter 12, verse 1. Now I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And I say this to my class pretty often, and so I would encourage you to, to just maybe try something here. Some of you don't have the ESV. Some of you have NIV, the New King James, whatever it is, it's fine. But if you don't have the ESV, as I read it, your brain is having to process what I'm reading as well as the, as, as the words that you find on your page, and those are different. And so your brain is working extra hard to reconcile two different translations. And so... I would encourage you to, if you're not reading from the ESV right now, that's fine. Maybe just close your eyes and listen to the text. Let me read it to you. Uh, I, I need that oftentimes. So I will have my Bible open, and I will close my eyes and let the speaker read the text to me so I can focus on the content. And if that's what you need to do, then try that. Especially if you're, I don't know if you're listening to this while you're driving or doing whatever it is you're doing and really have a choice, I would beg you not to read your Bible <laughs> right now as you drive. But just let me read to you. And if you're reading from the ESV, follow along. So chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, this is a familiar text, especially these first two verses of, of chapter 12. And I'm going to be totally upfront with you here. My fear 
is that because it has been visited so many times that our mind has become numb or calloused to its meaning, or that we've closed our minds to deeper understanding of this text because of just how familiar it is to us. So I challenge you to look at this with fresh eyes. Allow your mind to be opened to maybe some new observations in the text that I'm going to bring forward. Now, as I mentioned before, I'm reading from the ESV. And so some of your translations are going to start out with this word. It's going to be the very first word for me. I think it's like the fourth, one, two, three, four, fifth word in, in the sentence. And it's a crucial word, and the word is therefore. We have to figure out what the therefore is therefore. In other words, the theology that Paul is about to lay on us didn't come from a vacuum. It's based on the premises, observations, and indicatives that Paul outlined beforehand, which is why I went to some length to describe to you what Paul spoke about in chapter 11 so that we could understand the flow of thought into chapter 12. Now, I'm going to get nerdy. I can't help it. I come by it naturally, so tolerate me and amuse me, if you will, uh, for, for a moment. Paul has this pattern of the style of writing that is not necessarily unique to him, but it is a dead giveaway whenever you read a text, a biblical text, especially in the New Testament. And what he does is he structures his arguments and his texts most often in this relationship called indicative to imperative. In other words, he indicates truths he builds your theology. He teaches. He makes statements. Okay, so in chapter 11, he makes a bunch of statements about our faith, about Jews, about Gentiles. He's just indicating truth to you. And then he transitions to imperative. So because these things are true, because we have these realities, we must therefore act this way. It's imperative that we do these things. So he indicates a reality, and then in light of that reality, it is imperative that we behave this way. So there's a trans. There's a transformation here. There's a little bit of a shift in the text from indicative to imperative here in, in chapter 12. So watch for that, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight it again here in a few minutes. Now, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, by the mercies of God, that, that is the basis of Paul's appeal, and is likely a reference to the entire corpus of Paul's message up to chapter 12, not just chapter 11. It's the whole thing, by the mercies of God. He's saying, by all of the things that I have just outlined for you in the last 11 chapters, I'm urging you to do this. Now, as I mentioned before, I have a five-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter, and unfortunately, I'm sure it comes as no shock to you, they take after their father more than their mother in situations where discipline is involved. Now, my wife and I, we run a, we run a pretty tight ship, okay? Recently, discipline has been handed down on more than one occasion, but sprinkled in there are these strange and confusing events where instead of myself or my wife doling out discipline or punishment they know that they deserve, I instead refrain from this and give them a reprieve. That's not to say we don't have a firm discussion about their disobedience, but there is no negative consequence that I carry out. But in every instance where I do this, which is, it's not all the time, I wouldn't even say it's often, but it's enough to make a point. But in every instance that I do do it, I explain that instead of giving them what they deserve, I withhold that as a gift. I do this to them because God did it for me. For a five-year-old, that's an interesting concept, and 
I have his attention. So this is how I explain this. And this is a, maybe an oversimplification, but it's really helpful for kids. And we're talking about mercy and grace, okay? What is, what is grace? Grace is giving you something good that you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you something that's bad that you do deserve. Now, again, that's kind of an oversimplification, but he is using that as, an, as a basis for his appeal, right? What's the appeal? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, this statement, again, is very familiar to us, but I really don't think it gets the recognition that it deserves. Put yourself for a second in the mind of a first century reader. Okay, you're a first century reader, and pretty much your whole life, especially if you're a Jew, but even if you're a pagan, and you've been sacrificing to pagan gods, sacrifice is a part of your life. You make sacrifices. And I don't know if you figured this out yet, but the only kind of sacrifices that exist are ones that die. <laughs> that the, the idea, the concept is a novel one that you would be a living sacrifice. What a paradox that is. And, and Paul has already blown the tops off the minds of his readers for the first 11 chapters. And now he's just adding fuel to the fire. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, remember, this answers the question, that rhetorical question that Paul raised at the end of chapter 11. What could we possibly do to give back to God in gratitude? That which he does not already have? I mean, he already has and knows everything, so what could he possibly give back to him? The best that we could possibly offer him, here's the answer, the best that we could possibly give God out of gratitude for his salvation to us is everything. Notice here that Paul assumes, he makes the assumption that we would act out of gratitude. It's not an option not to. He doesn't even allow for the idea that we could be recipients of God's mercy and do nothing in response. He presumes that we would do something, but under this new covenant, since Christ himself is our sacrifice once and for all, the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 2 and 4, how is worship supposed to look? Well, we no longer have priests carrying out this intermediary act on our behalf. Paul is saying here that our worship is character. Here it is. Okay, listen to this. Paul is is saying here that our worship is characterized by what we do on a day-to-day basis. And he outlines that, what that looks like, starting in verse 3. It actually has virtually nothing to do with ceremony. It has everything to do with the small, mundane, day-to-day things. So, he's pivoting their understanding, and this first century understanding of worship being confined to a temple or to some sort of a place where rituals are carried out. No, worship instead is a living thing, and it it goes on as you live your life on a day-to-day level. Now, when it comes to translation, there's a tricky word here. Now, the Greek nerd in me, can't I can't let this one go. Some of your translations will say this is your spiritual act of worship. Others may say it's your true and proper form of worship. Now, the word here is logikos, or logikos, and can certainly mean those things that I just previously mentioned, but it also, it carries with it an intellectual element that isn't 
carried really in the text, in the translation. So another way to read this is that instead of saying this is your spiritual act of worship, which is true, maybe a, a helpful way to read that is this is your reasonable act of worship. This is your rational, your logical, your sensible act of worship due to what God has done for you. It is, it is logical and, and, and sensible that our life would then be recalibrated to, to His. Now, it, is it too much for Christ who gave His life and His body for you to ask you to give your life and body in return? No, that's sensible. So let, let's do that. And that's what Paul is saying. And notice that Paul specifically mentioned your physical body as a living sacrifice. In other words, Paul does not compartmentalize or hyper-spiritualize this. This is just as much physical as it is metaphysical. I'm going to step on some toes here, okay? Paul specifically mentions your body in presenting your body as a living sacrifice. How well do you treat your body? If you fail to care for your body, what kind of offering are you presenting to him on a physical level? I mean, this seems to be important, doesn't it? Are you a glutton? Are you lazy? Perhaps you hate your body because of its limitations in whatever form, especially as we age. But at the end of the day, we are stewards of it until we die. And there is on us the obligation to care for it in such a way as to present it to its creator as capable as it can be carried out in gospel work. Um, now, I, I don't want to divorce the spiritual and the physical because Christ himself didn't do that. This has intellectual, physical, and spiritual ramifications, and they're all inextricably linked. Now, verse 2, the imperatives continue, don't they? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the word conformed comes from this Greek word, syskematizo, which is where we later derive schematic in English. The concept that Paul is setting up here is that the world has a template and it is rooted in self-service and sin. And instead of you adopting that blueprint or schematic of behavior, your behavior instead should undergo metamorphosis into service. And the very word that we translate as transformed by the renewal of your mind, that word transformed, is in the Greek metamorphosis. That's a Greek word. So think about this with me for a moment. It's much easier and far less energy intensive to adopt a self-pleasing carnal schematic instead of undergoing spiritual metamorphosis. Think of the butterfly, right? It's probably the first thing that popped into your head. And the night and day change that it undergoes. And the struggle that ensues as it works its way out of its cocoon. The struggle, read here, sanctification, is not pretty. It is gruesome it is violent on some level, and it builds strength and character to shape the butterfly into the creature God intended in the end. But it takes work, that sweaty, nasty, scrappy, painful work to undergo this sort of thing. So how do we do it? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the metamorphosis of your mind. So let me ask you, how do you do that? Do you read? 
Do you read good books that challenge you? Do you, do you listen to people who are smarter than you, who know the faith better than you and challenge you? Do you read books and listen to speakers who would disagree with you in order to challenge your own preconceived notions and ideas? Do you meditate? I mean, that's a, that's a lost art, isn't it? Meditation. Now, there are a, a couple of books uh, that I would heartily recommend to you that will help you cultivate this spiritual discipline of transforming your mind. And uh, like I say, oftentimes that comes in the form of spiritual disciplines. The first book that I would recommend to you is a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, it's uh, by a guy by the name of Donald Whitney. Uh, he teaches at Southern. I sat in one of his classes. He is brilliant, and his book is extremely readable and very practical. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. The second book that I would recommend to you is a book called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Now, it's ironic, isn't it, that this continues Paul's urging for intellectual participation and sanctification just as we cannot be physically lazy, so too we cannot fail to exercise the mind. It needs to be renewed, refreshed, and reprogrammed daily. Carrying on verse 2, That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend much time here. The text speaks for itself on this. I think it's pretty clear. The transformation and testing of the mind yields discernment and knowing what God wants in a given situation. And that which God wants is good, pleasing, and perfect. So why wouldn't we want to know it? Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. As I read this verse, I'm going to tell you a story. I was reminded of something that my son did the other day. I was out in the garage uh, doing some woodworking. I, I picked up a new hobby of woodworking. And so I was uh, working this drill press, and, and uh, my son came around the corner and said, Hey, Dad, want to see my moves? <laughs> I wasn't really sure what he was talking about, and so I stopped. What I was doing, I turned around, and I said, Sure, buddy, let's see him. And then he commenced to the most wild uncoordinated demonstration of what he thought was karate, okay? Arms and legs were flailing about. He was punching the air above him, all around. Spin moves, which caused him to trip and fall to the ground. And then he would, you know, roll out of it and recover like it was all a part of the plan. And then he would continue to punch and kick the air going, ha, hi, ya, demolishing these imaginary bad guys. All of this more closely resembled a seizure during the middle of an earthquake than actual karate moves, okay? Now, in his mind, he is convinced that he is the baddest dude on the planet and can crush any bad guy that comes around, especially in defense of his sister or his home. He loves his sister tremendously. But in reality, he's pretty inept if an evil man were to break into the house and try and cause any of us harm. Now, he thinks more highly of himself and his skills than he ought to. But he's five and immature and just doesn't have the perspective that he's sure to get as he gets older. But this is quite the point, isn't it? Being reminded, getting a new mind, reminded of God's grace regularly should serve as a constant recalibration of who we are and who we are and what our skills are and what they aren't and who we get them from. 
sober judgment of oneself starts with comparing ourselves to God first and letting that guide our perspective of ourselves. Now, verses 4 through 8. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And he goes on to speak of gifts, right? Uh, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy and service and teaching and exhortation and generosity and, and leadership and acts of mercy and so on and so forth, right? Now, God gave us these gifts and attributes that are meant to build others up and serve the body of Christ. I don't think that's lost on you. But we tend to elevate some gifts over others, mostly unintentionally, I think. But we certainly think more highly of ourselves than we ought to because of the gifts that we have that maybe others don't. Paul is exhorting us to think about our abilities with an appropriate framework, which is service to others. It's not about kudos. It's about service. There are several other texts that expound on spiritual gifts, so we, for the sake of time, will have to defer to those texts and lessons on them for more information on spiritual gifts. Verses 9-11. through 11, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, Paul moves from charismatic or public gifts to like the, those gifts that we do um, in the church, right? The charismatic or the, or the public gifts, which is you know prophecy and, and gift-giving and generosity and those sorts of things. And now he's, he's shifting to isolate the character qualities of believers. Now, did you notice it? Are you a nerd like I am? Every single one of the verbs in verses 9 through 13 is imperative. It's an imperative command. In fact, this is true for the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read the rest of the chapter. But from verses 9 through the rest of chapter 12, which is verse 21, every single one of the verbs that you see is an imperative command. Do this, do this, do this. This is not optional. These are the qualities that are to characterize Christians. And so it begs the question, does it describe you? I mean, if someone were to read this list, would your name come to his or her mind? Look at the list. Love comes first, and I don't think that that's by accident, right? Love, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, he has also previously talked about humility. And I know you know what I'm talking about when I ask this question, but have you ever been around those those plasticky, fake people who they have that feigned humility, that pseudo-selflessness, or that, I really don't know another way to, to describe it other than the shady used car salesman persona. You know what I'm talking about, that griminess? It's relatively easy to spot, and it's disgusting. And I hope that we are characterized by honesty. Let love be genuine. Now, that doesn't mean you have to wear your heart on your sleeve all the time. You're certainly allowed to keep thoughts, opinions, and feelings private. 
But don't be something or someone that you're not. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And this means that we first have to recognize what evil is and what is good and not be afraid to call a spade a spade here. We do not call that which is good evil and that which is evil good, right? We know that. That's Isaiah 5.20. We cannot shy away from hating evil things, regardless of what culture would have us do or say or feel. So, for the record, I say this in honesty and humility. Homosexuality is, is evil. It's wrong. And it's not to be celebrated. Abortion is evil. And the list goes on. The culture may change, but the truth of God's word won't. And just because we recognize these things as evil does not mean that we hate those who carry them out. But we have to be willing to hate that which is evil. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Acts 2 and Acts 4 record this really well, don't they? That the church was actively, they were selling their possessions in order to contribute to one another and to meet each other's needs. Now, during this pandemic, many of our brothers and sisters have been impacted financially in an unfavorable way. And through generous giving, FBC Keller is meeting the needs of its members. And some of you who are listening to this right now have been consistently faithful to give and to share and to meet one another's needs. And so from one brother to you, a brother or sister, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Please please keep doing that. For those of, of our family who are negatively financially impacted, who are receiving your gifts, I don't know that... I can't speak for them necessarily, but I know that deep down in their heart they are grateful and that it means something to them to know that they're committed to a place that's committed to them. Now... The outside world should be able to look at FBC Keller and see this taking place and and think to themselves. It should be undeniable. Wow. Those people, they take care of themselves. They take care of their people. They take care of one another. I want that. I want that. Now, that's a conclusion they're going to have to draw on their own. But we need to be able to give them every reason to draw that conclusion. So let me, let me just recap the flow of thought for a second, okay? Let me kind of back out, zoom out for a second, take a 30,000-foot view, and, and just talk about the direction and the flow of the text, okay? We went from indicative, the indicative mood, right? God saved Jew and Gentile according to his will, and we did nothing to merit or earn it. That's chapter 11. Then he moved to imperative, how we should behave individually to worship in light of the gospel, okay? So because God did this, here's how we as individuals should worship. We should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual or sensible or logical act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is how we should do that individually. Now, in verses 3-13, through 13, this is how we should behave corporately in worship in light of the gospel. And so we talk about gifts that we have, the spiritual gifts. And then in verses 14 through the rest of the chapter, 14 through 21, Paul talks about how we should behave globally to worship Christ in light of the gospel. 
So it is truth. And the first thing Paul deals with is how you, as an individual believer, are to behave. And then he expands that focus to the church body. How do, how do we do to gifts? And by practicing gifts faithfully, that is worship. And then corporately, how do we interact with people outside of the church? Well, there is a long list here from verses from verse 14 through 21 of exactly how we should carry ourselves and conduct ourselves in the public arena. So I would encourage you to read that. Just read the, the, the last handful of verses here in the chapter on your own so that you can continue Paul's flow of thought before we get to Romans 13, which is more indicative for how we are to behave with the government and authorities and law enforcement. So I'm going to leave you with some observations and some application, if you will. If you're taking notes, this can be number one. Understand that the gospel was accomplished by God and applied to you because you could not save yourself. Likewise, the gifts that you received are not based on merit. They are gifts, not rewards, and are designated to each of us as the gift giver should decide we have them. We have no room then to boast or brag about what we have because it was nothing we earned and is not a reflection of our worth or character. We, it is senseless and even, dare I say, stupid to boast about gifts that we have. I don't think that that's lost on you, but it's, it's in the text and it's necessary for us to hear. Number two, this reality that God is generous and kind not only to save us, but to bestow gifts on us who are not just undeserving but ill-deserving is a demonstration of both mercy and grace and necessarily prompts us to gratitude. Let me, let me say that again. The fact that God would save us, despite the fact that we are sinners and that we rebel, he, he saves us, He turns us around, He cleans us up, and then He starts to generously bestow gifts upon us. The fact that we would not be thankful for that and not have an attitude of gratitude, so to speak, is counterintuitive and so I ask you, is your life in some way, shape, or form characterized by gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done for your life? Because if it's not, then I dare say you don't really understand the depth of the gospel and the sacrifice required for your purchase. Number three, how do we show gratitude then? By means of sacrifice, a living one that is pristine, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, unblemished. How? Number four by means of spiritual metamorphosis, by transformation, and a regular one at that. This is sanctification. We need to be reminded. We need new minds every day to become more like God. Well, how do we do that? Well, we can do this by practicing spiritual disciplines. Number six. Those are individual endeavors of worship, but within the body of Christ, we are to serve one another with our gifts, being ever mindful that they are given to bless others, not to reap praise for ourselves. Number seven, in addition to personal or individual acts of worship and acts of corporate worship, there is worship that we bestow on God publicly or globally. 
around lost people, which again is expounded upon in verses 14 through 21. So in, in closing, um, in light of those observations and in light of the text, I hope that in reading Romans 12, 1 and 2, and hearing those very familiar words, that you are struck with a new appreciation for them, and that your challenges, the challenges that you read and encounter here in the text are ones that you take seriously. We cannot read Romans 12, 1 and 2 in a vacuum. There's indicative and there's truth on, on one side of it, and, and Paul ushers us into action through chapter 12. And so if your life is characterized by by knowing the truth but not carrying it out, then Paul would have some very sharp words for you. On the other hand, if you are engaging in spiritual disciplines and you are praying fervently and you are practicing your gifts to the best of your ability, my hope and my prayer is that this text would encourage you to continue. Thank you for for listening. Um, It has been my honor and a privilege to teach the Bible to you, at least from Romans 12. I hope for the opportunity to continue to do this. Feel free to stop by A59 anytime. Myself and John Hoyer would love to have you. Uh, And let's, let's close. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the text. We're grateful for the opportunity to open to any page in your Bible and it be applicable in 21st century America, even during a pandemic. Father, I'm grateful for technology that in the midst of distance that we are not isolated and that we can still reach out and bless one another through technology. I pray that this particular message would land on its listeners and that you would do your work in it and through it to sanctify your people, to make us more like you, that we would be reminded Uh, and that we would offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Father, I pray for perseverance during this time. I know that it is hard for a lot of people, myself included, to be away from our brothers and sisters, for our everyday life to be so drastically altered because of this disease. So, Father, I pray that we would be, especially as we interact on on a global level, and a public level, that we would be the leaders in love and care and kindness and service to one another. Father, we love you, and we are grateful again for this time and these opportunities, and we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.